Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit PlanetBroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello and welcome to Book Cheat, the book club podcast where I've read the book so you don't have to. My name is Dave Warnicky, and on each episode of this show we look at one of the classics. I've read the book and the people that I talk to about it have not and let's meet them now from the Weekly Planet podcast. It is returning guest, Mr. Sunday Movies. It is good to return to Book Cheat. I love books, but I especially love not reading books and having them explained. <laughs> this is the perfect show and situation for me. <laughs> You've been waiting a long time for this. I certainly have. <laughs> and we are joined from the Just Make the Thing podcast. It's Claire Tonti. Hello and welcome. Hello. I love to read. I love to read a lot of books. Whatever, nerd. Time. <laughs> you just read picture books. <laughs> Come on. He's always Come on. reading picture books on his phone. Like She's talking really? about comics, not, not picture books. <laughs> I was honestly imagining picture books like you've got possum magic on your mobile, scrolling through, reliving the magic. Oh, Vegemite and oh, Sydney. Man, Fox, look at that. Get a pav. Oh, yeah, this is good. Actually, though, we do read a lot of picture books because we have a three-year-old as well. Yeah, I love a good picture book. Yeah, I love a good Yeah, let's book. not. Mm. Also, they're but, very um, difficult to write and make interesting. They are so yeah, difficult. There's a real art to it. Claire. <laughs> oh, sorry. Who dismisses them. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I always ask the new guest, Claire, uh, you've already said you love to read, but I usually ask the guests if they are a big reader now or if at any point in your life have you been a big reader? Oh, I was a very big reader as a kid. So in primary school, I loved to read and be in the library. I had a lot of friends. Not really, that's, that's sarcasm. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought I you were know, in the but, cool library gang. Yeah, that's true. The cool library gang. I remember I used to read Goosebumps. I oh, yeah. A bit of R.L. Stein magic. I love And Royal Dahl were my thing. And then fantasy. All those fantasy books. Loved those. So, yeah. Big reader as a kid. And then I got cool in high school for a while and didn't read as much. Because I found boys and things. Oh, hello. I boys know. and throwing rocks R- at trains. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of rebellious acts. Exactly. And then... Um, I got back into it again. But I sometimes fall out of it too. Sometimes you end up finding there's a Who's got the time? to watch. Yeah, it exactly. It is difficult. Who's Honestly, the, the reason I wasn't reading was because I wasn't finding time. So you know what I did? I made a podcast that made me read. <laughs> Here we are. You've basically given Yay! yourself homework. Exactly. <laughs> That's what you've done. You're your own teacher. <laughs> hey, it's so, working. It is? It is working. And have either of you been reading anything good lately you'd like to suggest? Ooh. To the listeners. Um, well, I have been reading um, Robert Galbraith, which is actually J.K. Rowling in disguise. <gasps> That's right. And I, was, was this the situation where it wasn't selling that well, so she had to secretly sort of come out and be like, <laughs> oh, hey, right. hey, guys, it's me. <laughs> Correct. So it was getting exactly. great reviews. So Yes. 
but it just wasn't selling particularly well. Yeah, not well. selling yeah. as well. I think people that found it, like, you know, people that like it, because it's sort of detective style yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like an old school um, detective novel set in London. It's like every show on the BBC, but as a novel. Yeah, and right. I bloody love those shows, like the disgruntled detective and then like All right, the hot lady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's always like smoking and drinking in a pub. Yeah, so that's basically it as a novel. But I love it because it's light reading. So I'm like you, I can't do anything too serious with books at the moment because I'm tired and busy. Sure. But I like this kind of book because it's like a fun kind of read. I love mm. the idea of, uh, what's her name? J.K. Rowling riding in disguise with a mustache on in a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't look at me. <laughs> One of those caps or something. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's really fun. It's there, um, the, the lead character is Cameron Strike. And so it's called a strike novel and I'm on the fourth book is. now. Mm, oh, wow. It's very good. Well, you're really getting through that. Yeah. And how yeah. about you, James? Have you been reading anything lately? Uh, I finished a, re- recently a series of short stories that were sci-fi stories, the name of which I was trying to Google on my phone furiously and I couldn't find. <laughs> so I, I don't know. But just before that, I read uh, Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton. It's an Australian book. Uh, it's about uh, like some some Sydney outer suburbs and a bit of gang stuff and drugs and a bit of supernatural and it's it's very good. And well, it's I'd, ticking every single box. It's ticking every yeah. box in every genre. <laughs> They're doing everything. Yeah. There's a romantic yeah. interest. <laughs> I think it was a crime writer or crime reporter. Maybe there's quite a lot of that in it. Uh, before he did this, but yeah, it's it's definitely worth a read. Yeah. And also that other thing that I read and can't remember is also worth a read. <laughs> yeah. So get on both of those. Well, yeah. if you ever remember what it is, we'll put it out <laughs> yeah. there. It's Done. been raved about a Boy Swallows universe. Yeah. Actually, it's um yeah, it's got a lot of heart and un- and surprisingly, um, for like a crime kind of drug related sort mm. of scene, it's got a lot of kind of heartfelt touching. It does. Moments. The characters are really well fleshed out. Yeah, and a bit of magic. Mm. Yeah. It was one of those things where when it ended, it was like, oh, I wanted to spend you know more time with these characters and now they're, they're oh. dead, essentially. Oh. <laughs> Not dead in the book. I mean, some Spoiler died. You know. Oh, right. Yeah, I thought you just ruined <laughs> no, no, it. Because I, yeah, like, I was going to say, how about a series? No, they're all dead. They're all died. <laughs> it ended in nuclear fire. But you know when you finish a really good book and you're like, I would have liked to stay in that world or you know continue. Yeah. And, yeah, so, yeah. But it was great. I'd recommend it. Yeah. Mm. That's my favorite thing about reading, that it takes you to another place and then you... You know, it's, but it's it feels good for you as opposed to sitting watching like fifty thousand episodes of Netflix. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well I, f- well, I find for me it's a good book if when I'm not reading during the day. If I think about reading and I'm, I get excited about the idea of going back into that right, world. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I get to read that again. Tonight. Yeah. So that that often happens on this show. They're all considered classics, but I don't <laughs> love them all. No. <laughs> But you were both talking about sort of crime-infused books there. How about we go back and talk about one of the original crime people? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Of doing crime or solving crime? (laughs) Well, one of the the original crime writers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Scottish writer, and we are going to talk today about Sherlock Holmes. (gasps) Have you heard of him? Absolutely. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll catch you up The perfect show. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Are we going to talk about Sherlock Holmes' first ever appearance in the novel A Study in Scarlet? I was not familiar with that. I, didn't, I just thought the first one was called Sherlock Holmes 1. The first <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the one with Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first published in 1887 and written by Arthur Conan Doyle, this novel marks the debut of Sherlock Holmes and his trusty sidekick, Dr. John Watson. Holmes would go on to appear in 56 short stories 
And that's really what put him on the map. They didn't really, right. people didn't really care that much about this novel when it came out. Mm. It was only four years later when uh, the short story started appearing in magazines and being serialized that he became one of the, you know, the most famous detective in the world. Are these all the ones under Arthur Conan Doyle? Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. And then uh, Arthur Conan Doyle also wrote three other novels. So this is one of only four full-length novels to feature Sherlock Holmes. Having said that, it is quite short. Yeah. It's only a bit over 100 pages. So you can imagine how short the short stories <laughs> yeah, that's are right. if yeah. that's considered his novel. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, Sherlock Holmes, very popular character, obviously. And this was suggested by that I do a study in Scarlet specifically. People can suggest a book that I can uh, mm. do on this show. And the, there's a link in the description of this episode if you want to click that and tell me why I should do a book. And maybe one day I will do it. And it's been suggested by Jessica Villarreal from Odessa in Texas. Robin Rositska from Harrison Township, Michigan, USA. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> Harrison Township, that sounds nice. I know. <laughs> and also Scott Gallantries from Southampton in England. So thank oh. you to those people for suggesting it. Now, before we get into the book, Sherlock Holmes, obviously one of the most famous characters in all of popular culture. James and Claire, how familiar are you with the character? Have you read much, seen any movies, TV shows? Because he's been in them all. He's, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Right. He's still hot nowadays. I, yeah, I talk, I he about, is hot. I talked like about him, him recently on this pod when I can't remember why he came up, but according to the Guinness World Records, he is the ca- uh, character that's been portrayed in film more than any other fictional character. Really? Oh, that would be why I've only ever watched him on the screen. Right, <laughs> yes, yes. And then he must be out of copyright, I assume, as well. Yes, so he anybody, is out of copyright. Okay, that that's right. Sense. So oh, if, yeah. that's I should say, if you are interested in reading this book, you can. Uh, Read it online for free. Excellent. It is available. It well, is listen out, to this podcast. It's out of copyright, but I mean, who's got the time? Who's got the time? <laughs> Come on, guys. I read it for you. Let, yeah, me, that's right. let me do my job. <laughs> so you've seen her on screen, Claire, but never any of these novels? No, or? I've never, never read the books. No. But I mean, I've seen the the films with Robert Downey Jr. They're fine. Which are fine. I but I love the BBC one. Um, with what's his face? Benedict Cumberbatch. I think it Come starts about. well and then it becomes him. nonsense pretty quickly. It does. And he's yeah. going into his mind and and having solving mysteries in his mind palace, and he's Dr. and he's John. swiping away all the data in front of him. And but right. I because I, I feel like he's too super powered in that. It's he may he can he's it's like autism as a superpower kind of thing, which is. But the kind of thing that, that I hate. Character is, or maybe not. I don't know. I He's kind of just pretty good at being like, "That's an interesting shoe. I saw that print down at the whatever, and look, there's a bit of rust on your nose, and that's from the steel mill or whatever." That's quite a bit of that. Yes, there is quite a bit. And the first episode of that Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch is actually called "A Study in Pink." Oh, Ooh. bit of wordplay there on yeah. uh, "Study in Scarlet," and there is a little oh, bit. I didn't there, know that. There's a bit of crossover in the plot. Okay, especially at the start. As to how the two meet, but then it really veers off <laughs> rather a lot. <laughs> okay. They did they, the second half because it's in two parts. This book, I part know. one, part two, and part two has largely been ignored by any adaptation of this novel. Is it because it's not as good? Or well, you you can tell me. No, that, that's what a you good reckon. point. No, now yeah. I'm really interested. So I assumed that this would just establish all the tropes of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, so that is one of the reasons I chose this yeah. one because there's many great Sherlock Holmes stories, mm. and there's there's four novels. Hand of the Baskervilles is probably the most famous sure, one. Yeah. Yes. I was tempted to do that, but I thought no, this is the one where it does. You're right. Set it, set him up. His mm. relationship with uh, John Watson, and yeah, we'll go from there. I thought, and then okay. if people like it, you can request it, and I can do some more Sherlock Holmes in the future. That sounds like a grand plan. I agree. What the the thing about Sherlock Holmes to me is the hat. 
That's like the one thing that I immediately think of when the I think deer stalker. Yes, is that what it is? It's yes, so it's called stalker. a deer stalker. It's actually not mentioned in this novel. Okay, but a lot of the other things are like the magnifying glass. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Does yeah. he have a pipe? Am I imagining? He'll often have a pipe. Oh yes, he smokes. That was fine. You could, you could smoke in a crime scene back yeah. then. It's <laughs> fine. It's absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah and he's, he actually is an expert, and he claims to be able to, from his studies, which we'll get into a little bit more, he claims to be able to look at any ash and tell you what brand of cigar it came Whoa, from. Oh, that's something. Yeah. How much? Love that, though. That's How much are you smoking? Are you <laughs> You've smoked way too much. That's insane. That is too much. Yeah. But yeah, yeah what a claim. That's his party trick. He goes up to an ashtray and goes, oh, yeah, big boss Havana right there. All right, sure. Like, we know you can, buddy. Yeah. We, we, we can, get it. can you do anything else? Yeah. <laughs> Just... I realize... at home he practices? Like, is it an innate You'd have to. skill? Well, he's or always he doing, a, he's doing an experiment, isn't he? He's always, like, doing, like combining chemicals and being like, and this is a different type of chalk than a different type of chalk and whatever. He's always... Oh, so There's he... lots of chalk. There's yeah. lots of chalk talk. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of like pots in his house full of different types of ash. Yeah, probably. He's, like, practicing. <laughs> he's like, he's tasting at it. Home? Who knows what he's up to? Yeah, yeah. maybe. Mm. All right, let's get into it with uh, chapter one. So, like I said, it's in two halves, and the first half is introduced as a reprint of reminiscences written by Dr. Watson himself. Oh. So, most of, nearly all of the Sherlock Holmes stories are told from the perspective of Dr. Watson. Yes. Him. Reminiscing on his time with Sherlock Holmes. And yeah, this is the first one. And basically, the year is 1881. Six years about? before it was published? Is that right? Did you say yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Mm. Uh, so it was written in about 1886 and then came out the year after that. So the year uh, the novel is set is 1881. And Dr. Watson has just returned from being a doctor in the English army. He was serving in Afghanistan as part of the Second Afghan War. And you, you remember in the TV show. Of course, yeah. He's got the limp. And he comes back mm. from uh, war in Afghanistan because mm. they're still fighting. They're still <laughs> doing it. My goodness. Uh, the second business. That's right. The second Afghan war, which means the second time that England invaded Afghanistan, <laughs> as they were doing to lots of places around the world at this time. Uh, he had a disastrous time as he was shot in the shoulder and had his bones shattered. And then whilst recovering from that injury, he got sick with a fever and then was forced to return home to England to recover. Mm. So he was on a pension whilst he recovered and, quote, under such circumstance, I naturally gravitated toward London, that great cesspool into which all loungers and idlers of the empire are irresistibly drained. Oh, so true. If you've ever been there. So What a cesspool. <laughs> so, and he's sort of wandering around. He's very aimless. He's living at hotels, sort of mm. fritting away his money, but his pension's about to run out. So he's oh. freaking out a bit. One day at the Criterion Bar, he ran into an old acquaintance named Stanford. And he mentioned that he was looking for a cheap place to stay because he's running out of money. Stanford responded that another acquaintance had mentioned to him that day that he too was looking for someone to live with. A man that he knew who was working in the chemical laboratory at the hospital. That man's name was Sherlock Holmes. Whoa, Whoa. imagine if it wasn't. Yeah. Darren Fisherson. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, I guess I'll move in with him then. <laughs> I like Darren Fisherson. No, I'm sure he'd be very clean. I think he's a good bloke. Mm. Do you think it would sound like such an amazing name? Obviously, it's hard to pull away from all the connotations we have with it, but it is a pretty amazing name. It is, Sherlock yeah. Holmes. Holmes, yeah. And then at the same time, it's also ruined the name Sherlock because you can't call... You couldn't Absolutely call your son Sherlock. you can't, no. yeah. That would just be teased endlessly and everyone <laughs> would know... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Where it comes from. Hey, Sherlock, stole your lunch. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to solve that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
nickname if you were called Sherlock? You wouldn't really, could you? Sh- like, Sher? Sher? Hey, Sher. Shirley? Shirls. Yeah. Shirls. Holmes? Shirlsy Sh- Holmes. Shirlsy Holmes. Yeah, it doesn't quite work. No, does it doesn't. It? It's, it's the full thing. Yeah, it has to be thing. Sherlock yeah. the whole time. What does it mean? Do you know? I'm actually not sure where it comes from. I'm trying to, there was a TV show that I loved in the 90s. It was, and it was supposed to be his great niece or something. Do you oh, remember I think that I TV remember show? That, yeah, there was a lot of British kids solving crime TV shows in the nineties. Ghost Rider, yeah, what was it? Press Gang, Shirley Holmes, that's Shirley right. Holmes, <laughs> that's right, brilliant. Yeah. Ran from ninety seven to two thousand. I really enjoyed it. And at the start, it had this opening sequence that sort of described uh, she found a letter in a desk addressed from him. And that's what's inspired her to become. Was it to specifically her? I don't. I think it was to her, who, whoever finds this. Okay, because that would have been an amazing deduction. She is yeah. the yeah. <laughs> well, to my niece Shirley Holmes in the year nineteen ninety seven. First of all, how's Yahoo chat? <laughs> that's right. She was the great grand niece of Sherlock Holmes. Anyway, so. Sherlock Holmes, Stanford says, you should, you should meet this guy. Stanford wasn't exactly sure of his background, but he knew that Sherlock was a fantastic chemist, although a little bit of a strange man. Mm. Watson asked to meet the man, but Stanford tried to distance himself from the consequences of the introduction, saying, <laughs> quote, you mustn't blame me if you don't get on with him. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's like when you set people up and then you're like, if it goes wrong, it's kind of, you yeah. feel like it's your fault. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You feel partially three responsible. Three years hence, they break up. Yeah. Oh, no. I did that. Yeah. I yeah. caused that misery. I once did. Oh, no. I set up two people, like a, a friend of mine with a guy I didn't know very well, but I did it because I just sort of thought that they would get along. And the date went terribly. Oh, no. So terribly. I know. Did you, and did you know, so you knew them both? Yeah, the I guy knew, a little bit. Yeah, the guy and then, a little bit. Did they both the come back to you and say for different mine. reasons whilst it, why it was bad? <laughs> no, well, oh, they both well, ran to the bathroom during the dates at different times in Rangclair. <laughs> what oh. have you done to me? <laughs> I think actually, even more awkward. I think one thought it went okay, and oh, another that's, yeah, thought that's it went way worse. Yeah, so I don't meddle. Whenever you're like, do you think so and so? I'm like, no. Just <laughs> let them live their lives. Them Leave them alone. Enough, Mates that I helped to set up are now married. Yeah, for now. So, you know. Yeah, that's right. But when it all goes down the toilet, <laughs> it was nothing to do with. I'll be like, yeah, you know when he introduced us twenty-seven years ago? <laughs> that was the worst day of my life. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm going to hit you in the head with this brick because <laughs> you introduced us. That, that's how we'll be even. So Stanford says, "Don't blame me. Like, if you don't get along, it's on. It's on you." Watson was intrigued and also worried by this, and he inquired what he meant. And Stanford said that. Holmes sometimes takes his science a little too far just for a result, including, quote, beating the subjects in the dissecting rooms just to see how far bruises can uh, be introduced after death. Oof. So he's hitting dead bodies just to watch them bruise. Yeah. A little bit weird. I didn't even know they did bruise after death. Well, Sherlock Holmes was trying to prove that. Yeah. <laughs> what if they have, like, is it rigor mortis? Or isn't mm. that when, isn't the a body stiffening of in, joints and stiff up? limbs? Yeah. But I guess they still look, I don't know. If someone's freshly dead, they'd probably bruise if you punched them. Yeah, because there's still blood in there. Yeah, that's right. There's still blood in there. (laughs) (laughs) Watson uh, still wanted to meet him, and immediately after being introduced, the first thing Homer said to him was, How are you? You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. (sighs) Oh, he's good. Watson was shocked and asked how he knew, but Holmes immediately moved the conversation forward after being told that Watson was also looking for a housemate. 
Holmes described himself to see if Watson would still be interested in living with him. He, he described his shortcomings. Holmes' self-confessed shortcomings or potential annoyances were that he chewed tobacco, did a lot of chemical experiments at home, played violin, and sometimes got down in the dumps for days without opening his mouth. But in a few days, he'd be right. Also, he's an opium addict. Doesn't mention that. Does that come up in this book? chemical experiments. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not mentioned in... So drug taking is not mentioned in this book at all. Really? In fact... One stage, Watson does look over at him and he's sitting on the couch and he says to himself, oh, if I didn't know his regime and how much he looked after his body, I would think that maybe he was into some sort of chemicals. Really? But, so that may be setting oh, up the future, future. He looks high AF, he says. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, Holmes added he'd been keen on a place in Baker Street and he invited Watson to check it out the following day. And Watson agreed, even though... He was going to live with someone who played violin. What a nightmare. I would want to hear how good they are because the violin, <laughs> yes. I think, is one of the most beautiful instruments if you are good at it. Mm. But it is so horrible oh if you're God. not good at it. Oh, yeah. It's so bad. My sister played it as a kid. Oh, so it's bad. like cats fighting in a bag. No, but I yeah. suppose you have to be bad for a while to get good. <laughs> yes. But yeah. you really have to be bad. You'd be hope if he's, if he's like 37 that he's <laughs> somewhat competent at that point. But he's good, isn't he? Yes, he is. Does pretty, he use it to good. think? Yeah, so he sort of... Uh, when he's trying to muse on something, he'll yes. just play a bit of violin. My sister, when she was in year seven, she must have been one of the last people to turn up to the band practice because she was given the French horn. <laughs> and I remember she would go upstairs to a, the, our living area upstairs and I'd have to go away and leave her alone. But because it's such a loud instrument, all you would hear is... <laughs> like rattling the whole house. And oh, she was no good and not nah. passionate, never practiced. So, oh, she gave it up quickly, thankfully. <laughs> but good. Yeah. So bad. So bad. So the next day, the two got together and they inspected 221B Baker Street. Oh, yes. One of the most famous fictional addresses because they agreed to live together in the two-small bedroom flat. Watson observed Holmes and was fascinated by the man who was over six feet tall and extremely thin. He would usually From drugs, (laughs) probably. (laughs) That'll do it. Uh, He would usually be up and out the door before Watson and seemed incredibly productive. But then some days, suddenly he would just lie on the couch with a vacant expression. That's when he looked over at him and thought, God, I think he was a drug addict if I didn't know (laughs) how productive he was. Just sometimes he would just go into a a, a haze for a few days and then uh, come back out of it. Uh, Watson becomes (laughs) a bit defensive here. Because remember, he's telling the story and he observes that the reader might think of him as a busybody. But his defense is, quote, you don't know how objectless my life was at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, I didn't have a lot going on, all right? There's no TV. (laughs) So I just stared at a man who was staring at a wall. He doesn't go to any lengths to hide that he doesn't have any friends or anything going on. He can't go out in the cold weather due to his health and he's happy to have anything happening around him. So if that is a man... Sort of who looks like he's been smoking opium. He'll watch that guy. So, and his new his mission became to unravel the mystery surrounding this new companion. Which is imagine moving in with a housemate and being like, "My life goal is to work out you." Yes, (laughs) that is weird. That's very weird. That is so weird. would just follow him around the house with a notepad, always. Yeah, just like jotting down ideas. Well. I, I almost have exactly that. He noted that Holmes was brilliant when it came to certain fields, but had almost zero knowledge of other things, like, for example, popular culture. Right. No yeah. idea. And he, wrote, he actually includes this list, which has 12 items on the list, called Sherlock Holmes, His Limits, which is basically like you're saying. <laughs> Great. A list of 
things he's good and bad. Weaknesses. <laughs> Bleach. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's just yeah. to murder him. Like you've got a flat in Carlton or something and you've moved in and you're like with a, a new, brand new housemate yeah. and you're just following them around. Imagine yeah. if somebody you fe- somebody did that notes. to you and you found the list. Oh, your weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> intense and puts a whole new spin on just like they didn't do the washing up no they stalked yeah. me forever yeah. it's a different time <laughs> well, this, this is the list knowledge of literature nil knowledge of philosophy nil knowledge of astronomy nil knowledge of politics feeble <laughs> knowledge <laughs> <Not> of <nil. laughs> knowledge of botany variable well up in belladonna opium oh. and poisons generally Knows nothing of practical gardening. <laughs> what? How does he bring that up? Yeah. So, uh, what do you know I, gardening? Yeah, practical or yeah. regular? The regular. Yeah. If I had some uh, flowers, how often would you water them? Every hundred years <laughs> with sand. Feeble. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah. Knowledge of geology, practical but limited. Tells at a glance different soils from each other. What? After walks. Has shown me splashes upon his trousers and told me by their colour and consistency what part of London he had received them. Great. Whoa. Knowledge of chemistry. Profound. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Profound. Okay, really so good at chemistry. Feeble okay. to profound. Knowledge of anatomy. Accurate, but unsystematic. Oh, because he's punching corpses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know where I punch him. I just punch him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember from the TV show, the, the newer one, he... There's an episode at the start, it's, it's quite funny, where he doesn't know that the moon goes around the earth. Because he's like, I just don't need to know that. So yes. I don't have that information. It is mentioned in here as an example that he doesn't know that the earth goes around the sun. Oh, right. Maybe it was that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. He might not know that either. But yeah. And it was mm. kind of a bit like, hang on. You're a man of science. Mm. Yeah. People have known that for it a long, like long time It seems like he just discards things that he deems irrelevant. That he doesn't yeah. need. Wouldn't you need practical gardening tips? No. 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 Well, why would you need to know different soils from each other? For murder crimes. Yeah, yes. basically. Because he's only things he's listed good at are sensational literature, immense. He appears to know every detail of every every horror perpetuated in the century. So he knows all the details of all the crimes, the people that murders. have been murdered. Yeah. Basically, he was into true crime well before everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plays the violin well. Okay, good. Is an expert single stick player. Have you heard of single what stick? What is that? What's that? I didn't know this. Basically, how many I- sticks is that? One. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say he's an expert single. I was like, yeah. oh, he's just really good at Tinder. There's the a best. great Casanova. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, uh, single stick is basically imagine fencing, but they do it with a single stick, a piece of wood. Okay. And he's really good at that. So just hitting someone with a stick. Yeah. Or <laughs> dead bodies. Or dead bodies. Yeah. <laughs> he's a very good boxer and expert swordsman. Okay. And finally. Number 12, has a good practical knowledge of British law. Sure, but not politics. No, knows nothing. Interesting. No, nothing about him. Couldn't even name who was in charge of the country at that time. Me neither, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're not living in that time. That is true. 1881. <laughs> yeah. And we live in Australia. I mean, it's pretty confusing. I don't even know the promised areas at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be different at the time of recording and the time <laughs> of release. true. Even though there was about 48 hours in between. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he's writing down these notes about him. Holmes brought in clients uh, into their home for meetings, but Watson was unsure as to what for. Hmm. A little bit weird. Sometimes he'd just be like, sorry, I've got someone coming around. Can you get out of the lounge room? Yeah, get out of here, mate. I need to practice my French horn. <laughs> <laughs> it was so horrible. Uh, one day, Watson read an article from a magazine to himself, and the article was called The Book of Life. 
It attempted to show how much an observant man might learn by an accurate and systematic examination of all the things that came in his way. The writer claimed, by a momentary expression, a twitch of a muscle or the glance of an eye, to fathom a man's innermost thoughts. After reading it, Watson slammed down the article and said out loud, What ineffable twaddle! Oh, slam oh, it down! Good phrase! <laughs> ineffable twaddle! I love that. I want to use that in regular You will life. never use that. <laughs> What ineffable twaddle. Okay. I, I stand corrected. I apologise. And you've applied it brilliantly. I did. I said it so well. Well, he yelled this out and Holmes was also sitting on the couch and he looked up and asked Watson what he was talking about. What's up? He, he told him it was the article that had really set him off. Watson said, quote, I see that you've read it since you have marked it. I don't deny that it is smartly written. It irritates me, though. It is evidently the theory of some armchair lounger who evolves all these neat little paradoxes in the seclusion of his own study. It is not practical. I should like to see him clapped down in the third-class carriage on the underground and asked to give the trades of all his fellow travellers. I would lay a thousand to one against him. And Holmes replied, You would lose your money. As for the article, I wrote it myself. What? Mm. He's just a vain guy that circles his own stuff. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Watson will read this and then he'll ask me about it. And I'll tell it. <laughs> just leaving it out. What do you reckon of this? Well, so Watson was a bit taken aback and a bit like, oh God, I shouldn't have said that. Nah, we live together. Yeah. Holmes then revealed that he is, quote, a consulting detective and that he depends upon his reasoning for his bread and cheese. Okay. Not butter? No, he goes straight to cheese. <laughs> straight to cheese. <laughs> yeah, he's bread and cheese. Uh, the clients that kept appearing all over the place are asking for Holmes's help with mm. their cases. Stuff too difficult or yeah. mundane for the cops. or. And Watson was dubious that a man could hope to solve other people's cases without actually ever leaving his lounge room. So Holmes gave in. Ah. So Holmes was like, well, I know stuff. For example, you seem surprised how I knew that you came from Afghanistan. And he said, I knew you came from Afghanistan. The train of reasoning ran, here is a gentleman of a medical type, but with the air of a military man, clearly an army doctor then. He has just come from the tropics, for his face is dark, and that is not the natural tint of his skin, for his wrists are fair. He has undergone hardship and sickness, and his haggard face says that clearly. His left arm has been injured. He holds it in a stiff and unnatural manner. Where in the tropics could an English army doctor have seen such hardship and got his arm wounded? Clearly in Afghanistan. The whole train of thought did not occupy a second. I then remarked that you came from Afghanistan and you were astonished. <laughs> you were ast- As I recall, yeah. you were pretty impressed with yeah. me. Uh, Watson is then further impressed when Holmes has a telegram delivered and before the man, they can see him coming up the street, opens his mouth uh, Holmes correctly deduces that the man is a retired marine sergeant and then they ask him are you a marine sergeant and he goes retired aye aye <laughs> gives him a bit of a, a salute and that is when Watson starts to believe the hype he's like this guy's a witch he knows stuff <laughs> yeah so that's sort of setting up Holmes as mm. you know that guy and Watson as a guy who greatly admires him <laughs> yes it's, yeah yeah is that the dynamic? So Watson kind of just follows him around going, I'm astonished by you. Watson's got some abilities. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes he'll go out on his own and do some stuff. and But yeah, but he's, and he learns, he picks up a lot from Sherlock Holmes. And I think sometimes that he like comes back and thinks, oh, I didn't know anything. All I discovered was this. And it's like, but that's the missing thing. Watson, ah. you idiots. Yeah, without you, I wouldn't have been able to solve this. <laughs> ah, I see. Mm. So they like become very good friends. Yes, and they lived together for over two decades. Yeah. Whoa, okay. 
This One is time. suspicious. Just friends. Though, no, so... Uh, I was, looking, I was looking into this. So Watson does get married and he goes off with his wife. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but oh, she, she dies and then he goes back and they live together again. Yeah. Oh, right. The, so, yeah, the perfect it. crime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the telegram was sent to request Holmes uh, via Scotland Yard to, to ask for his help on a murder case. He's at first reluctant to go and, and help as he predicts that he will solve the case and that the police will get all of the credit, Fair as boy. is often the way. Yeah, don't do a good thing for no reason. But, yeah, I know. <laughs> but Watson eggs him on enough to make Holmes want to go and he invites Watson along with him. So he gets to watch his hero in action. <laughs> uh, together they travel to the crime scene where a man has been murdered in an abandoned house in a place called Lauriston Gardens in London. Holmes and Watson are met by police inspectors Gregson and Lestrade. Ah, yes. You know Gregson and Lestrade? I know Lestrade is the head of, is he? Oh, well, they're both inspectors at this time, but yeah, I think they become recurring lackeys, so to speak. Uh, Watson recognises Lestrade as a man who's called on Holmes before, one of their people that was asking for his help, so he clearly goes to him for help a lot. They've got a secret (laughs) handshake. Yeah, these guys know each other. Yeah, they know it. Holmes surveys the crime scene and examines minute details using a measuring tape and a magnifying glass. And this is the first example of a magnifying glass being used by a detective in fiction. Really? Oh, yeah, okay. so, that, that, so cool. He, he did, in, uh, Conan Doyle did invent that trope. Is that useful though? What are you looking at? Fibres? Mud yeah, I and such? Can, yeah, and like maybe a fingerprint or something back okay. in the day. A little bit of, yeah, a strand. Do they do fingerprints in this? The dusting for prints? Not in this, no. Yeah. Mate, you need it to look at like a little bit of ash. Oh, yeah. In particular, a cigarette ash. Yeah, that's right, because that, that's he's, point. he's obsessed with that kind of thing. He is, yeah. And it's tiny, James. I guess everybody smoked, so it'd probably be a pretty handy yeah. thing to know. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. But they're, I... all prob- they're also all probably smoking in that room. Just yeah, ash it all so over true. the corpse. And... <laughs> yeah. I just love the idea of Sherlock Holmes whipping out his magnifying glass, because it's quite a ridiculous thing to pull out of your pocket. Oh, for sure. And at the time, I imagine all the other people like, Alright, he gets results, but this is embarrassing Yeah, exactly, because then you have to lean right over You've got to bend right down, yes, like it is. flip it out, stick it on your eye And then bend right over with it It's quite a funny Really, really thing. examine it Bum in the air <laughs> Yeah, bum in the air Big eye kind of, you know when you look at someone with a magnifying glass Their mm. eyes like <laughs> yeah, they humongous look ridiculous. Yeah, they look ridiculous He's got his hat on Yeah. Anyway. Maybe, we don't know Maybe not. The hat was not described, which I was a bit disappointed by oh. Because okay. I'm also a fan of the hat. Yeah. Cool. Well, they go inside and they see the dead body. A middle-aged man lay dead on the floor with a look of horror in his eyes. Oof. In his Do- eyes? Yes. Dr. Watson talks about how he's seen his comrades like hacked to death basically in front of him in Afghanistan. Mm. And he was saved only at the last second by, by another man. And he thought he was going to die. But this, the look of horror in his eyes makes him feel, you know, feels more stressed than in that situation. Sounds like a man who has PTSD but doesn't yes, realise he has yeah. Yeah. PTSD. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the man is lying dead, surrounded by blood, but has no wound, and the police are unsure as to how he died. But mystery. Slipped on, a, slipped on a pool of blood. <laughs> That's pretty uh, scary, though. I think so, yeah. That would be so scary. <laughs> Uh, the man appears to be a certain Enoch J. Dreber. <laughs> These names are spectacular. Love I know. it. Enoch. So you never good. hear an Enoch anymore. You don't hear uh, an Enoch. Arthur Conan Doyle also ruined the name Enoch. Yes, he did. We met, we met an Enoch. Uh, really? One of our guides up the mountain in when we did Kilimanjaro. There was an Enoch. <gasps> yes, yeah. he did. I know one Enoch. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he 
Are they African? Is it an African? He's Tanzanian. Yeah, yeah. Tanzanian. Mm. Yeah, he was awesome. He was. Enoch. Slipped on a big patch of blood. (laughs) (laughs) He rests in peace. Is he the one that had the giraffe drawn on that with a rude picture? Yeah. On the rock? He drew. I know we found a picture of someone had graffitied a rock up there, a giraffe, and it had a, a. a penis. <laughs> really? Yeah, like a real big this one. This is it. Uh, was someone trying to pass it off great. as like thousand year old cave art? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Hey guys, these had a sense. These people had a sense of humor. As yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Like the, one of our favorite photos of Kilimanjaro of climbing is just you and Enoch just screaming at this with rock. like the giraffe. Yeah, yeah. We should have taken better photos. Memory. <laughs> yeah. memories. Yeah, the other one was when we climbed to the very top and we had really, really dodgy gear and it was so cold up there that we had to stick our hands down our pants to keep our hands from yeah, freezing. Like, put your hands in your pants. They'll keep you warm. Yeah, it wow. works. Yeah, it was yeah. That, we were that cold. And so all the photos of us up there, everyone else looks like quite triumphant and we're just like hands, hands. in our pants. <laughs> in front of our pants. <laughs> yeah. It's really cold up there. It's so Very freezing. Cold. It's ridiculously cold. I mean, it's easier than... That other it's mountain. not it's Everest. Really, it's not Everest. No, but it's a mountain. Any idiot can do snow it. With snow and glaciers deal. and things. We and don't need to talk about... No, we don't. We're a real off track. <laughs> Get back no, on no, track. No. Enoch. Enoch, <laughs> yes. yes right. Who is a, appears to be a wealthy American. He had in his possession a letter addressed to himself and another man called Joseph Stangerson. Mm. Or Stangerson. Yeah, Stangerson. Stengen. 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 Let's go with Stengerson. Swedish? Stenga. Good old Stengsy. <laughs> Stengsy. Uh, the letters were from a steamship company and talked of their upcoming departure from Liverpool to New York. So they were clearly about to travel back to America. Cool. A woman's wedding ring was also found, which rolled out as they picked up the corpse for removal. Oh. oh. They didn't check the pockets? Well, it, I guess they did that. looks like it had just been underneath him. Oh, okay, right. Inspector Lestrade came back into the room and smugly claimed to have cracked the case wide open because he noticed the words Rach written in blood on the wall in the corner of the room. R-A-C-H-E. Rach. Lestrade claimed that clearly whoever wrote it was trying to write Rachel and got spooked before they could finish it. He thought Rachel must have something to do with the crime. That's a good point. Oh, he's a genius. He's using a bit of uh, Holmesian deduction here. That's not like... Oh, that's a reasonable thing to jump to before Sherlock Holmes is like, you idiot. Well, here it. we go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> From his own observation, Sherlock is able to deduce lots about the killer. Basically, he looks at the footprints around the room. He works out uh, that it's a tall man, the other person that was in the room. Because they the assume the killer because I of the assume. stride around the room. That's right. He has small feet for his height from his footprints. He came here via a horse and cart because he asked the police officer, did anyone come here via a horse and cart? And they said, no. And there's uh, some tracks out front. Nice. So clearly that's where he came and left. He smoked a certain type of cigar <laughs> yeah, <that's> good. <laughs> from the ash. And he had long fingernails on one hand from where he scratched the word race into the wall. He could oh, see. Okay. Holmes then announced uh, that the victim was poisoned. Then, then as he's leaving, he has one of those smug moments when he says, Oh, one more thing, Lestrade. Here we go. Reich is the German word for revenge. So don't lose your time looking for this Miss Rachel, end quote. Oh, such a cool customer. Oh, it's but so... Was the guy, so the guy is, must be German? Well. Well. A good <laughs> deduction, you'd think. You would think that. I did think that. Don't write words on the wall. If you're doing a murder, just go. I know. Don't stride around the room no, with, your, lo- with your little feet your and your little long feet, legs. Your <laughs> six foot long legs. Smoking a cigar. <laughs> doing laps. Yeah. Trying to get your step counter up. Yeah. 
So he said, don't look for Miss Rachel. And this is how the chapter finishes. And with that Parthian shot, he walked away, leaving the two rivals open-mouthed behind. (gasps) A gape. And a Parthian shot, which I was very happy to look this up, by the way, refers to the Parthians, ancient Iranian people who were tremendous horse archers. And whilst in a feigned retreat, the archers would turn their bodies back in full so basically they'd run oh, away and people this, would yes. chase them up the hill and then they'd turn around on the horse this is before stirrups so they're riding bareback on a horse mm. and whilst they controlled the horse backwards they would sh- shoot their enemy so that's called a Parthian shot that is nuts Whoa. isn't that cool that's the I coolest thing in the that. world that is real like Game of Thrones yeah, yeah totally so you're like we've news. got them on the run oh no oh, they're no. all turning around they can do this thing that nobody should be able to do yeah. I would love to be able to do not shoot. To people, what end? But but just to be that cool <laughs> and like steady, just you know, be riding a horse, yeah. shoot an arrow, oh, yeah. and then keep on riding. Okay, so well, awesome. instead of reading books, you should do this from now on. You should yeah. work on. start a horse riding podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's right. Cool. Just ride the thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's very there we good. Go. Okay, excellent. I will. I'm Most episodes would be like, so I fell off the horse again. Was <laughs> 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 riding bareback and I turned around, I fell off. Hey, maybe I'm really good at it. Maybe James. you are. You're right. I should, I should just you write should the thing. You have more faith in me as my husband. I do. I as do. my husband. <laughs> <laughs> should I have mentioned that at the top? You guys are married. We are that married. That is why we are in your house with your shared dog. Correct. Correct. We are married. For now. For now. <laughs> oh, who set up? Who set you up? Who set you up? We weren't set up. We met independently of others. So you can't, there's no one to blame there's in There's no this one situation? to blame, no. no. Oh, we, had nice. mutual, we had mutual friends, but... Uh, mm. yeah. So can you blame all of them? Yeah, we'll blame them. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Someone <laughs> has to be blamed. Someone. Somebody. I'm not taking the blame. <laughs> you can't take it yourself. Yeah. Correct. So Parthian shot, like that. Uh, Holmes and Watson then went, went round to interview Inspector Rance, the police officer that had discovered the body the night before. Basically, okay. he'd seen a candle burning in what he knew was an abandoned house. And he was like, that's a bit weird. And then when he went inside and looked, he found this dead body. So that was a dumb move by the murderer to leave a candle. Yes. Uh, he tells Holmes and Watson what, hop- what happened and that after discovering the body, he and another police officer had to prop up a, quote, drunk who was hanging around the fence. Holmes then tells him, I'm afraid, Rance, that you will never rise in the force. That head of yours should also be for use as well as an ornament. Oh, he's so pithy I know. and mean. No. Shots all over the place. <laughs> Holmes explains to Watson that that man could have been the killer and that he came back for the ring. Remember there was that wedding <gasps> ring? Okay. So he thinks that that guy came back, this is the murderer, looking for the ring, had to pretend to be drunk and the police officers were like... He actually said, usually I would arrest him for being that drunk, but we just found a, a murder victim. We so, we, so we just pushed him off down the we street. We don't have time to take anybody's name <laughs> yeah. or hold anybody for questioning. No. There's been a murder really near this man, yeah. near this drunk man. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. He should, Yeah, he is an idiot, that cop. I'm with Sherlock uh, Holmes. Sorry, mate. Yeah. He's dumb. Holmes announces that he will have to bait the killer with the ring himself and hope that he bites. Nice. Uh, chapter 4 is also where the book's title comes from. Holmes is thanking Watson for pushing him to take on what is turning out to be an interesting case. And he says, I might not have gone for you, and so have missed the finest study I ever came across. A study in Scarlet, eh? Why wouldn't we use a little art jargon? There's the scarlet thread of murder running through the colourless skein of life, and our duty is to unravel it and isolate it and expose every inch of it. Mm. So he's just referring to, yeah... The horrid business of solving murders as a study in Scarlet. Yeah. He has a sweet way with words, this Sherlock man. Yeah. Well, he's I up like on literature, it. isn't he? But not on the moon or whatever. 
Well, no, so yeah, <laughs> sensational literature. Yes. <laughs> Anything that describes dead bodies, he's into it. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. Mm. So to catch his murder out, Holmes puts a, uh, put an ad in several newspapers, found columns. Back in the day, yeah. you found something, you lost property, you'd put, a, you'd put an uh, ad in the newspaper, and he claimed that he'd found a wedding ring on the street near where the body was discovered, and that, that it should be collected from Dr. John Watson between 8 and 9 p.m. that night. Cool. Okay. So basically, he didn't want to say it was found inside in the abandoned house, because then the murderer would know, oh... This has something to do with that. There so he just said the sh- a street nearby, hoping that the murderer would be like, oh, maybe I just dropped it on the way out. Sweet. Holmes expected the suspect or someone sent by the suspect to appear. But only an old woman arrived. Bang on 8pm. She said the ring belonged to her daughter who had lost it. Watson gave her the ring that looked almost identical to the one that they'd found. They gave her a fake ring. Nice. And then Holmes decided to follow this mysterious old Ooh. woman. Holmes appeared later, home later that night, disappointed and a little bit embarrassed. He followed her. She got in a horse and cart and he hit on the back. He actually jumped on the back. That's so great. Yeah. <laughs> and before he heard her say, oh, I'm going to get off soon. So he jumped off. Uh, but the woman never got out of the back. When he looked in the back of the carriage, it was empty. <gasps> it mustn't have been an old woman at all, but a young man dressed as, as an, an older old... lady. What kind of detective oh. genius doesn't know an old man dressed as an <laughs> old lady? Oh, a young man dressed as an old lady. Posty is like a guy from yeah, the exactly. army or something by just a glance, but he can't tell someone dressed up as an old it lady. It was an Oscar-nominated Mrs. Doubtfire-style <laughs> performance. <laughs> I can only imagine been. that they arrived with a cream pie on their face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello! Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie, actually. Man, that is... <laughs> so he deduces that, that that is a young man, a great actor, who must have realised that he was being followed and who was obviously prepared to risk a lot to help out a He'd killer. already jumped out of the carriage at some point, I assume. Yeah, but right? he yeah. jumped out at a point sure that even Holmes notice. couldn't work it out when he got out. How big? Carriage though, like you would hear the thudding. That is clickety clack of the wheels. Yeah, the clickety clack, it covers it all up. Yeah. Uh, okay, clickety clickety clack. Yeah. Cobblestone yeah. streets. Yeah, I, I don't buy this. This seems This seems a weird. I reckon point. he's probably deduced the exact thing that's happened here. Well, that's what I think. Oh, maybe. Are you still on the German lead over here? Right. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I have to th- no. Maybe? I don't know. No. Well, newspapers sensationally reported that the body belongs to Drebber, the American. Mm-hmm. An American who'd been travelling with his secretary, Joseph Stangerson. Remember, he's the, other, the other letter was addressed to this person. Yes. Mm-hmm. Officer Tobias Gregson then called upon Holmes and smugly told him that he'd made an arrest on the case. He showed off to Holmes with how he thinks he'd cracked the case. He tracked the hat that Drebber was wearing that was found at the crime scene back to a hat shop. <laughs> Great. He would send it to a boarding house, which he then went to, and he discovered that the deceased man and his secretary had been staying there. Mm. Upon interviewing the owner of the boarding house and her daughter, he thought the owner was acting suspiciously, and the daughter told her mother to tell the truth. The truth is that Drebber had been staying there. He'd been paying a high price of a pound a day, and that she needed his business, and that's why she looked the other way when Drebber was acting inappropriately to her female staff. Oh, gross. She's making sort of uh, inappropriate comments left, right, and center. But that the final straw came when Drebber grabbed her own daughter, and then she asked him to leave. Yeah, don't be grabbing people. He yeah. did. 
But then he came back and again grabbed her daughter and asked her to come with him. The daughter was paralysed with fear, but then her brother, a Navy officer called Arthur, came home and basically kicked the crap out of Trevor and sent him packing. Good and they, job, so Arthur. they suspect that Arthur is the murderer? Well, because Arthur claimed to have followed Drebber afterwards. Okay, right. Okay, and Drebber is the dead guy. He's the, dread, the dead guy. The guy with the so he admits that, that, he's, that he's, you know, beating beaten him up for touching up his sister. Yeah. But then he says, I've kept following him to, just to make sure he wouldn't come back. But then he got in a horse and carriage and he, he went away. And then an old woman got out. I didn't know what was going <laughs> <laughs> Arthur, the, the guy that beat him up, he said he gave up pursuit and met an old friend and went for a long walk together. But this friend couldn't be found anywhere to corroborate his story. Oh, no. So Gregson arrested him for murder, thinking that he followed Drober, killed him, and then hid his body in the house. This was crime solving, wasn't it, back in the day? It's just like, yeah, we're, we're pretty confident you were there, so it was you. <laughs> yeah. so. It's also the era where you could just go, I didn't do it, and I wasn't there. And they'd be like, well, we can't. Oh, God, how are we going <laughs> to get him to say he was there? Yeah. You could just say, I was at home, and then nobody... Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh. Anyone see you there? No. No. Okay. <laughs> this checks out, sadly. I was reading a book. See? This one. It's a bookmark in it. <laughs> so Gregson's showing off about this. He's showing off to Holmes. And he's also backing out his colleague Lestrade, because they've got a bit of rivalry themselves, yeah. these officers. Lestrade, who has instead been looking for Dreber's secretary, Stangus, and he thought the key to solving this was finding his, his, uh, you know, his accomplice, his mm. friend. He was still laughing about how silly this theory is when Lestrade appeared at Holmes's flat to tell him that he found Stangerson. He was dead and had been murdered at a hotel that <gasps> morning. Wow. So nanny! <laughs> I was going to say a different word. That morning. What word it were you going to say? I don't know. I can't, I can't tell you what I thought I was going to say. Were you just going to extend the morning? I just pa- I panicked. I panicked a lot. I'm so sorry. Was okay. this it's a hard word to would, say. Did the murder happen while they got that other guy in custody for the murder? Yeah, that's yeah, right. So, so it's all unraveling. He's, he's, he's like, damn. That guy would have been put to death if this didn't happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, whoops. We've already hanged him. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Gregson explained, this is the guy that's just found Stangerson's body, that he went searching through hotels and after lots of dead ends found the secretary's accommodation. He checked with the hotel front desk who claimed that Stangerson said he was expecting someone. So go okay, right Okay, yeah. And the cop's like, all right. I will. So, Stangus, uh, so Gregson went upstairs to Stangerson's room and found blood oozing from underneath the door. Oh, no. He kicked in the door and found Stangerson's body. It had been stabbed in the side and his heart had been pierced by a knife. No a, young, a young boy came forward <laughs> and said he'd seen a tall man in a brown coat leaving the window of the hotel room. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. via a ladder and at first thought nothing of it because he thought it was a tradesman of some kind. Sure. But this description- I mean, it was morning, so... <laughs> yeah. huh? Was it morning? Yes, it was morning. It was morning. It was actually morning. Okay. Uh, this description of a tall man in a brown coat matched the drunk man that had appeared oh, I see. at the first murder scene and also matched Holmes' predicted description of what he thought the guy would look like. 
So they're thinking that must be the murderer. Do we know what happened to the first guy, how he was poisoned and why there was blood on the floor? Yeah. Do we find that out? We will find that okay, out. Good. But okay. speaking of poison, on Stangerson's bedside table, there was a box containing two pills. <gasps> and that Raish was again written in blood above the body. Revenge. Mm. And upon hearing this, Holmes cried out that the last puzzle piece had fallen into place and that he now knows who did it. What? Both police officers were annoyed because they'd both chased the wrong suspects and yes. sort of proven that each other were wrong. So they asked Holmes to tell them what he knows. He said that he thought that the killer and his accomplice, the actor slash Mrs. Doubtfire, <laughs> were capable of great disguise and could easily outwit the police. So he didn't want to share his theories and that he would take the blame if he was wrong. Basically, he said, I ain't telling you what I know. Telling you shit. <laughs> he then asked to see the pills that had been discovered and cut them both in half, keeping some to experiment with later. But for the other half, he dissolved them in water, and I kid you not, asked Watson, quote, if you, I can't believe this. What is this? Where is this going? <laughs> oh, God. What is going on? Oh, this outraged me. Watson, you wouldn't mind going down and fetching that poor little devil of a terrier which has been bad for so long and which the landlady wanted you to put out of its pain yesterday. He then dissolved the pill in water and tested it on the dog. Oh, what? my goodness. That's but, like actually did yes, it. Yeah, but the dog didn't react. Holmes was dumbstruck. He stood there waiting for the dog to die. Dumbstruck at first. Before realising, oh, I should give the other pill a go. So he oh, gave, you got to mix the two pills. No, so then he, yeah, so he gave the other pill to the dog and it died instantly. Oh, thank God. <laughs> what <laughs> the hell, Sherlock Holmes? What is going on? So this is what that guy was talking about that at the That was science then. The si- him going too far with science, not yeah. really thinking about the consequences of it. Yes, the old lady had apparently asked Dr. John Watson, the doctor, if he would mind putting the the very old dog, down, but still. Did the dog have a look of terror in its eyes because it was poisoned to death? <laughs> yeah, I know. He's got that, oh that horrible, horrible look. And this, the, for me, this is the craziest part. The dog is not mentioned again, and the group casually continue talking about the case for several minutes <laughs> with a dead dog just sitting on the couch. We have an alive dog sitting on the couch, and it outrages me. <laughs> I'm a real dog person, and oh... Oh, oh, God. It was like John Wick all over again if yes, you've seen that film. Yeah. My God. I nearly turned it off at the start of that film. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, I will not ruin it for you. But, God damn. That's so terrible. I couldn't cry. I saw Marley and me where the dog died. Oh, I haven't seen that, but I won't oh. see it now because I know a dog dies. Yeah, dog you can't dies see it now. And it's so heartbreaking. That's also, they're just like all standing around being like, you want a cuppa? And there's a dead dog on the floor. Dogs were like rats then. Does it? You know, it's England and everything's but diseased. But it was a pet. It was a pet. Yeah, it was a pet. That's oh, true. Yeah. I mean, dog. don't get me wrong. I wouldn't poison a dog for science or other. I'm glad to know. Mm. A cab then arrived, or a horse and cart, for Sherlock Holmes, who began packing a bag. Watson was confused as he didn't know where, where he was going, or that he was even planning a trip or anything. Holmes made a quip about how the police could use better handcuffs and showed them his pair that used a, a superior spring. Okay. He then asked down. the uh, cab driver... So you can't use those. You're not a cop. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I could arrest you for that. <laughs> he then asked the cab driver who'd arrived at the door to help him with his bag and, quote, at an instant, there was a sharp click, the jangling of metal, and Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet again. Gentlemen, he cried, with flashing his eyes, let me introduce to you Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Dreber and of Joseph Stangerson. Who? End quote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. The suspect had been handcuffed. Was this the cab driver? The cab driver had arrived and he said, sorry, can you help me with that? And then in an instant, he quickly, before the guy Bang. knew what was happening, handcuffs on him. 
But not before he told everybody he had superior handcuffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> you should use these. Click. <laughs> the suspect had been handcuffed, but didn't stop him attempting to jump through a window to escape. He, which he did, but they grabbed his feet before he fell through the window. So he basically just cut his face up very, very badly. That's very funny. It took all four men to wrestle him, but after a big fight, which ended when they half choked him out, they finally <laughs> had Mr. Jefferson Hope under control. End of part one. Part one? Huh? Are you thinking what the hell's going on? Yes. I'm a I'm little confused about... Much. Yeah. Who's... Can you remind me who Stangerson is? Oh, Stangerson is the dead secretary. Secretary of the first guy who was murdered. And he oh, was stabbed. Okay. Yeah, so Enoch... Heart and side. Enoch dead. Treber is the guy that they found on the floor covered uh-huh. in blood, but they were like, what, what's happened to him? And yeah. then they Stangerson, who they found a letter in uh, Dreber's possession... Mentioned him as the secretary. He's the second guy, a second dead body. And Holmes has said, this cab driver killed both of them. And everyone's like, qua? I'm just, I'm mostly confused about why he would even turn up as the cab driver. Why would he be the guy who'd be like, yeah, I'll go get Sherlock Holmes, the man looking for me. Who's renowned for knowing very good details. Mm. Well, that is why they put uh, Dr. John Watson's address for the found ring, just in case anyone... Very good point. He actually says to him, I I don't hope you don't mind. I used your name because people know me. Yeah, right. Even though he's not a world-famous detective Is there only one cab driver (laughs) in London? Well, all will be revealed. Okay. I just want to ask, the second half... Can't have as much story as the first half, <laughs> obviously. Do you think that? <laughs> okay. There's a lot of... So the second half is very different from the first half. Okay. There's the people standing in a room going, and then you did this, and I did this, and then you did this. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking that it would probably go to that kind of thing. We'd go to a court scene type thing. Okay. Absolutely not. The, the absolute opposite of that. This is called part two, The Country of the Saints. What? Is there a single stick fight or whatever? The, <laughs> <laughs> well, part two opens with a description of an inhospitable section in the heart of the United States of America. What? Ah. A huge area that is freezing in winter and bone dry in summer. An area that Native Americans avoided and only travelled through briefly. It almost seems like a completely different novel. I'm a bit like, is this the same story? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, maybe this is like a different murder mystery, but... We'll continue. In 1847, a flashback from the first half of the novel, we come across a tall and extremely thin bearded man wandering through the salt pans. It is revealed that he is dying of thirst, and after scanning the horizon and seeing no signs of life or moisture, he puts his backpack down, which makes a noise as he does so. That's because a little five-year-old girl is wrapped up inside. What? In a backpack? Yeah. The man and the girl have a conversation where eventually he reveals to her that they are the only two survivors of their group. Everyone else has died of thirst. Even her mother and the two of them will soon die as they are now out of water completely. Cool. I love this Sherlock Holmes story. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite. Man and girl die in the (laughs) desert. It's my favorite. The girl is surprisingly upbeat about the situation as she thinks when she dies she will go to heaven and be with her mother again. That's okay. Good. The man gets the girl to say some prayers and then the two of them fall asleep from exhaustion. As they sleep on the horizon, a dust storm starts and it turns out that is from a giant caravan of travelling carriages. Hundreds of them. Hundreds, you say? And this is a place where no one lives. It's very strange. 
The caravans are travelling along when they discover the man and girl who are awake and think that they are completely imagining things. They're hallucinating from their lack of any hydration. Sure. But the men from the carriages quickly reveal that they are indeed real. They explain to the man and girl that they are the Mormons from the Church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ah, oh, keep it going, fellas. Just keep, <laughs> keep moving. Let's <laughs> die. <laughs> Travelling from Illinois to escape persecution, are being led by the hand of God to a place that they call Zion. The thirsty man reveals his name is John Ferrier, and that the girl with him is Lucy, and that being her only su- the only surviving adult from her group, he will now adopt her as Lucy Ferrier. Very good. There you go. The Mormons tell John that he can only come with them and they can only save him if he accepts their religion and joins them forever. Oh, come on. That's not what religion's about. Well, he actually says, I can see no alternative, and well, they actually laugh. Yes. They laugh. Yeah. And he agrees, and Lucy and him are taken to one of the carriages before the group sets off again. So the caravan rolls on, and John proves himself to be a great hunter for his newfound friends and actually becomes very popular with the group. I love these new characters introduced in the second part of this story. <laughs> such a weird, no, such a honestly, weird I'm reading it going, part. what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. So he's so popular that when they finally reached what they decided was their destination, it's decided that John would get as much land as any other member of the church except for the very senior people. Of course. Right. Their destination, by the way, was Salt Lake City, Utah, ah. a city set up by the Mormons and founded by their leader, Brigham Young, who's a real guy and he's in this, in this story. Great name again. That's Just keep that is right. rolling yeah. out great names. Mm. Uh, John was a very hard worker and a great farmer, and over the years was so successful that he became one of the wealthiest men in the city. His daughter Lucy grew up and was a, a great farm girl too, and the book describes the day she became a woman. What does that mean? Oh. She was on her horse when she was caught in a stampede of cows and it looked like she would be crushed until a dashing man on horseback saved her. He explained he was travelling through the area for work, prospecting, and told her that his father knew her father. His name, Jefferson Hope. (gasps) The murderer, maybe. That is the name of the murderer. Yes, good. Okay, good. Yeah. So he's a horse rider and a cab driver. Man of action. A man of action. He'll leap from a carriage. He'll ride a horse. He will. And I'm confused. Did she become a woman because Jefferson Hope turned up? Or was it like to the day she became a woman and now she's a woman and now the next scene is Jefferson, Jefferson Hope? No, no. It was basically she noticed a man for the first time. Oh, wow. That's okay. the only way you that's, become Yeah, that actually yeah. makes sense. Before that, yeah. That's Science 101. That Everybody is. knows that. Everybody He's a science guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, he'd fallen in love with Lucy at first sight. He called on her father, John, saying, my dad knew your dad, blah, blah. And he grew very close with Lucy. He kept dropping round to be like, John, how are you? really wanted to talk to the daughter. Of course. Uh, to the point that he, he said he had to go away for two months. But when he returned, he would be able to take her away and marry her. He had received her father's permission and left with a kiss. They were both deeply in love. Sounds like oh, it. Lovely. It's beautiful. Beautiful. It's a beautiful. Yeah. And on one hand, John Ferrier was sad that his daughter would be leaving him. But on the other, he was happy that she was marrying someone outside of the town. A non-Mormon Christian man. For despite the fact that a Mormon, the Mormons had saved him all those years ago, he would have considered his daughter marrying one of them as a disgrace. Wow. So he'd been living among them for about 15 years. Oh. They'd saved him, but this whole time he's like, I don't really trust these I, people. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe it's more like you don't They'll want forgive. to be forced to become a, a religion mm. when you're old, to, like... Just because otherwise you'll die. It's probably not the best way to join a religion. No. We clearly, yeah, he didn't, he didn't take to it despite. He clearly <laughs> lied, <laughs> yeah. which I would do. 
Yeah. Correct. Well, he was fearful of going against the church as there were many stories of people speaking out against the religion or saying the wrong thing to the wrong person and then that person would disappear in the middle of the night. Ooh. John thought of it as the persecuted had become the persecutors. <gasps> so they'd moved from Illinois because they'd started up this new religion and people were persecuting them a lot. But now mm. they've created their own city. If anyone goes against them, it's That's not how good, it goes, not man. Good, not good news yeah. for them. Taylor's oldest time. <laughs> it certainly is. A few weeks went past and he was taken by surprise one day. This is uh, Farmer John. When Brigham Young, the leader of the church and city, appeared on Ferrier's farm. Knowing nothing good can come from such a visit, like why would the most important man in the city yeah. be visiting, John was super nervous. And he had right to be, for Young accused John of letting down the religion that had saved his life. John defended himself and said, You know, I've become wealthy, I've given back to the church just as everyone does, I've attended church, what more do you want? Get out of my face, old man! <laughs> Young asked John where his wives were, for at the time the leaders of the Mormon church had multiple wives. Brigham Young himself had 55 wives in real life. That's way... Oh, gross. No, it's... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. So many. <laughs> that's so many. That's Most... so many. You wouldn't remember them all, would you? No, 55. 55. Absolutely crazy. And I, I do believe that no longer most people in the Mormon religion have multiple wives. But back at this yeah. time, they were, they were, which it's not, a, it's not good for really society, really, because most societies, just, just how it works out, is 50 50 men to women ratio. Yeah. Not every man can marry 55 women. And depending on no. how many children those kids have, they're all related. Yeah. Well, you could, you could have hundreds of children potentially, each one has two. You would really have to like take your family tree around with you in your pocket. Yeah, you totally. Yeah. Or marry like a Christian check. from a different town. No, they don't like that. <laughs> they don't like that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> John's defense, because John had stayed unmarried this whole time. He never married again. His defense was that he didn't need a wife as he had his daughter and that's, you know, sort of he doted on her. And that he, well, already, So he stole all the women. Yeah. He married 55 <laughs> women. He, he also says, there's, not, there's already not enough women for everyone to marry multiple wives, so I left the women for other people in the town. Nice. Basically oh. trying, trying to spin it in a way that's positive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, then Young spoke of why he was really there. This is Brigham Young. He had heard that Lucy had, was betrothed to a non-believer. He told John that, he, that she must marry a Mormon within a month and gave him two options. Marry the son of either Elder Stangerson <gasps> or the son of Elder Dreber. <gasps> two names that we know from the first oh, half of the book. Interesting. Name of Enoch. Might be a coincidence. Might be. It's probably a coincidence. Yeah, probably I don't think it's connected. Mm. To show that he was serious, his parting comment, as he turned around on his horse, got his arrow and shot down the hill. <laughs> it were better for you, John Ferrier, that you and she were now lying as blanched skeletons upon the Sierra Blanco than you pit your weak skills against the order of the Holy Four. Four. And then he left. Basically, you will rue the day. You rue the day. You, you crossed you. us. Lucy herself came into the room and she had heard everything. John said that they would not bow down and that they would send for her lover, Jefferson, and they would get all the money they could together and skip town. Nice. That night, John Ferrier polished his shotgun. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great detail. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Who's recounting this part of the story? So this is just like an omnipotent. Okay, so it's not Watson. Narrator, He's yes. like, this is what I think happened. No, so we've jumped anyway, out of Watson's... Anyway, polish this shotgun, I assume. <laughs> so we've jumped out of Watson's diary for, okay, for a cool. little bit. This is an interesting story, though. This I know, this is very interesting. Yeah. And it's written, I will say, written extremely well. Right, okay. I love this part of the, like the book. Do you like this part 
more Probably than the first better part. than the first part. Because yeah. I guess it's so I out love, of nowhere. Yeah, I just love the story of what's going on here. It's written so mm. well. It's kind of tense. You're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, and it starts with like, who cares? What is this? Yeah. You're like, okay. Yeah, because I was like, what? Could be the start of some weird like sci-fi or something. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, like right. dystopian yeah. people wandering the desert. You don't know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really enjoying it too. I think it, I'm... We um, should read it. We should read <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the next day, John Ferrier was visited by his two daughters' Mormon suitors, Mr. Drebber and Mr. Stangerson. Mm. The two men began to sell themselves to Ferrier as to why he should pick one of them over the other to marry his daughter. Stangerson's selling point was that he only had four wives as opposed to his rival's seven, and therefore he would care more for Lucy. That's a good point. Drebber counted that he had more money and that he should be chosen. That's also a good point. How do you choose? Well, John Ferrier chose neither. He told them both to leave and to show them that he meant business. He said, quote, There are two ways out of the room. There is the door and there is the window. Which do you care to use? John <laughs> is window. a bad... I thought he was going to say the door or yeah. my polished yeah. shotgun. Yeah. Or the body bag. The door or the window. <laughs> He's going to throw it on the window. Throw through a window. Okay. Yeah, I like him. The two men run away and they say, you'll rue the day again, blah, blah, blah. Et cetera. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the wrath will come upon you. And he said, well, why don't we get the wrath now? And he went upstairs to grab the shotgun, but Lucy... <laughs> was like, no, no. Just don't. leave the wrath for now. Yeah. <laughs> Hold off on the wrath. But he could have just gone, I'll think about it. It doesn't have to be like threats, everybody. Everyone gets threats. Because he could have said, gone, yeah, I'll think about it, and then leave town. Well, they said, you will rue the day again, going against the prophet and the council of four, the holy four, which will result in your destruction. This did scare John Ferrier, as no one had ever gone against the church like this before. People had been disappeared for tiny grievances, for calling out oh. tiny little things. So he trembled to think what would happen at such a rebellious act. The next day, he woke to a sign on the linen on his bed, on his sheet, that said, as he woke, that said, 29 days are given you for amendment. And then... Dot, dot, dot. Oh, that's it. <gasps> He couldn't work out pizza. How, how someone had yeah, and then a pizza party. <laughs> he couldn't work out how someone had gotten into his house without him knowing. The doors and windows were all locked, and it was on his bed that yeah. he was lying in. The next day, the number twenty-eight was on his ceiling. Oh, they're doing a countdown. He stayed awake with his shotgun the next night and heard nothing, but still awoke to the countdown of his death, the number twenty-seven. Where was that one? Oh, they're all over the shop in okay. the lounge. <laughs> He's do- Lucy also doesn't know what they mean, so she's a bit like, what? what's that? He's like, this? don't worry about it. It's fine. He had sent for his daughter Lucy's lover, Jefferson Hope, to come and help them out. But the countdown reached 15, then 10, and then 5. He had all but given up hope, but at no point did he think of handing his daughter over. Mm. He would rather they both die, and she agreed. <laughs> wow, okay. Oh, wow. He said that to her, I would rather you die, and she said, me too. Me, yep, Which I'm with you. Full on. Guy who's yeah. not really my dad. I know, <laughs> some guy from the desert. <laughs> I love how, like, the first female... There's been two female characters so far in this whole book. One was an old lady whose dog was euthanized, like, oh, on yeah. the spot. That's right. And then now it's Lucy who has zero say in her life, in and her own life. And there's also mention of wives. <laughs> and, and, like, was, and random 55 wives. There was also a man dressed as a woman. That's oh, good, actually. True, yeah, convincingly. True. Yep, convincingly. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I, I forgot about him. Mrs. Doubtfire, please. <laughs> uh, on the final night, he's freaking out. Yeah. We've got one night to go. He's thinking, Jefferson didn't get the message. No one's coming to help. On the final night, he heard a scratch at the front door and thought it may have been a would-be assassin come to kill him. Ferrier opened his front door and saw nothing and felt relief. 
before he noticed a man lying and writhing upon the ground. The man crawled into Ferrier's house and sprung up. It was Jefferson Hope. Whoa, he's the world's greatest actor. (laughs) Hope said the house was being watched on all sides, so he had to crawl to avoid detection. But being a hunter, he knew how to sneak. They immediately had to put their plan into action. Jefferson had uh, hid some horses in a nearby valley. If they made it there, they would be a long way away by daybreak. Okay. They crawled out a side window when the night was at its darkest and started out. But immediately, Jefferson stopped the group crawling along the ground. He had sensed two men waiting in the dark whom he'd heard speaking. They talked in code about when they were planning to attack Ferrier. When they were planning to attack Ferrier. And as they parted, one man said, Nine to seven? And the other replied, Seven to five. What? Bit of code? Bit of code? Yeah. The escapees then raced through the night as fast as they could and eventually made it to the horses and got on. They looked to be home free when upon a large rock they noticed a man with a gun. A sentinel who immediately asked who they were and what they were doing in this part of town, part of night. Jefferson replied that they were travellers from Nevada, travelling with the permission of the Holy Four, the highest people in the town. Yeah, they're the good ones. The guard said, nine to seven, and Jefferson knew to reply, seven to nice. five. Nice, good, good looking nice. out, Jefferson. Good. And they were allowed to continue travelling on horseback. <laughs> nice. Uh, the trio of fugitives battled on and only dared rest when they thought that they were at least 30 miles ahead of their enemies and in relative safety. Jefferson Hope lit a fire to warm the others whilst he himself went out hunting for food. It took him hours to find an animal large enough to feed them for days and after he shot and killed it, he collected his meat and realised that he'd become a bit lost. It took him until nightfall to find his way back and when he called out to camp, he heard no answer. <gasps> He dropped his meat and started sprinting and when he arrived, the fire was nearly out and there was no sign of anyone. He lit a torch and began searching the campsite before out of the corner of his eye he saw something, a pile of dirt that was unmistakable as a grave. On it a piece of paper read, John Ferrier, formerly of Salt Lake City, died August 4th, 1860. So John's dead. I thought he was going to be the murderer. What? No, we know the murderer is Jeffrey Jefferson Hope. Oh no, that's Jefferson Hope. Oh, oh yeah, then who's Keep that guy? Man, John. No, but is I thought the he was going to change his name or something. Oh, John John's is the, the dad. dad. And okay. The, and the, Lucy's missing now. Okay, now I get yeah, well, it. He looked around Jefferson Hope for another grave, hoping not to see one, and he didn't. All he saw was lots of tracks leading back to Salt Lake City. He presumed Lucy had been kidnapped, and from this point on, he swore to dedicate his life. To revenge. Nice. Or Raish. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Raishi. He would do what it takes to kill those that had taken from him the only thing in this world he cared about. He had to walk back to Salt Lake City because they'd also taken his horse. The only other thing he cared about. Unbelievable. At least they didn't dig a big horse grave. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then in the mountains, he met a Mormon man he'd once worked with and begged him for information. It turned out that Lucy had been forced to marry Dreber. Ah! Dreber and Stangerson had fought over who would marry her, and Stangerson claimed that because he'd shot her father, that he should get the prize. But the elders ruled that she should marry Dreber, and so she did. The man, talking to uh, Jefferson, also added that Lucy looked ill and did not look long for this world. And that man was right. Lucy died within a month, and her new... Husband, in quotation marks, Dreber showed little care as he still inherited her f- murdered father's farm and wealth. That's how bad of a is that? Bitch. You kill the dad, then you yeah. get his stuff. 
Oh, my God. One night, Dreber's other wives, remember he's got several other wives, were all gathered around and saying goodbye to Lucy's body when the door was kicked in. It was Jefferson Hope. Here he is, baby. It's race time. <laughs> race. Well, a little bit of race. He'd come to say goodbye to his love. He kissed her, her dead body, and took her wedding ring and declared, she won't be buried with this. He then disappeared back into the night. Jefferson Hope remained in the mountains and attempted to kill both Drebber and Stangerson over the coming months. A bullet through Stangerson's window and nearly killed him. A boulder nearly crushed uh, Drebber to death when he was out hiking. The men began to live in fear and stopped going out at night and surrounded themselves with bodyguards. They even sent teams up into the mountains to find their enemy, but they never got him. He's a good hunter. He said he'd lived with Native Americans and knew the land really well. Yeah, yeah. So he's just an ultimate badass. And actor. <laughs> yeah, and actor. An old lady. He's a real Daniel Day-Lewis type. <laughs> I really like this Jefferson Hope. Well, meanwhile, Jefferson Hope, realising that he would soon die if he continued living like this, resolved to return to the mines to work, where he would restore his health and save up enough money to be able to dedicate his life to vengeance. Of course. Initially, he, wanted to, he planned it to be one year, but it took him five years. Eventually, he, uh, he returned to Salt Lake City to find that the social structure of the Mormon church had completely changed. There had been a big rift in the church that led Dreber and Stangerson to flee. So they'd previously been in power, but oh. people had risen up. And they had to run away. Dreberson had kept his wealth, but Stangerson had lost almost all of his. So he had to start That's working secretary. as Dreber's secretary. Oh, that makes sense. Nicely done. Jefferson Hope had no idea where they'd gone, so he spent many years just traveling the USA looking for them. It seemed like an impossible task until one day he caught sight of Drebber in a shop in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, that's a do-go-on favourite, isn't it? Oh, we love Ohio. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Probably our favourite state. The patron state of the do-go-on podcast. Our favourite city is, of course, Gary in Indiana. Yes, yes. Neighbouring Ohio. <laughs> Drebber recognised his enemy and saw... The murderous look in his eyes, so he saw Jefferson looking at him, and he went to the local magistrate and organised the police to lock up Jefferson Hope so he would have enough time to escape. On what grounds? I'm pretty sure he bribed him. Okay, yeah. Because he's a wealthy, wealthy man. Mm. By the time he was was released, Jefferson Hope, this is, Drebber had escaped to Europe, and after saving more money, Jefferson Hope followed him. Tracking him from city to city, he finally caught up with Drebber and Stangerson in London. Ooh... And as at this point, quote, as to what occurred there, we cannot do better than to quote the old hunter's account as duly recorded in Dr. Watson's journal. So now we go back into Dr. Watson's Watson's, journal to wrap up the story. So is this where we get the revelation of how Sherlock Holmes knew that the the cabbie was was Jefferson Jefferson? Yes. So we have a bit more from Jefferson Hope. So they don't fully know that story. Everything that I've just recounted. Imagine if he deduced that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just saw him walk. So that's just a backstory <laughs> from cat. some godlike narrator, narrator who's yeah. just telling us about that. But this bit uh, comes from the confession of Jefferson Hope that Dr. Watson copied down word for word um, from what he'd told Holmes, Watson and the police. Here we go. Before he confessed to his crime, he confessed that he was dying. He had a heart problem and an aneurysm that could kill him at any moment, a fact that Dr. Watson corroborated after examining the man. Jefferson told of how he got a job as a cab driver to pay the bills, but this also let him easily follow his targets without suspicion. Mm, very good. No one notices the cab driver. He's crafty. That's right, which I think... That, that's a big part of that, that first episode. That's a big episode. part of that first yeah. episode of uh, Study in Pink. But he's not doing it for any of those reasons. He's just doing it because no, he's no... like, I'm a genius and nobody understands me. Yeah, drink that's a, right. Drink a poison, please. There's no... Mormon backstory to that one. Yeah. No. 
Basically, he followed them for a long time and they were very careful. They never went out at night. They never went out without each other. There's always two together. He had to wait until one day they split up for a few hours. Uh, finally, they were, they were apart. And as fate had it, drunken Dreber needed a cab. And because this cab was following everywhere he went, as soon as he hailed one, Jefferson Hope was ready to pick him up. Got him. Dreber was so drunk he fell asleep and Jefferson was able to drive him to the abandoned house and once inside, he was able to reveal his true identity. You said he was actually like like really excited because it was like the final moment. Like, yeah. I'm going to kill my enemy. This feels great. Dreber was full of panic when he realized who it was and Jefferson held a knife to his throat and gave him the option of two pills. Only one had poison and the other one that Dreber didn't pick, Jefferson would himself take. So one of them yes. was going to die. Yep. The two men stood there, staring at each other, waiting to see who would die. It was Drebber. Got him. Got him. Yeah, I think we worked that out. The, yes. the poison acted fast <laughs> and he died suddenly with Jefferson dangling Lucy's wedding ring over him. Being like, uh, remember, remember this? Where's the blood from? The aneurysm caused Jefferson's nose to bleed and, uh, a lot. Okay. It uh, flooded the room. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> And using the, the blood, he wrote the word Raish on the wall, hoping to throw the police off the scent. Very clever. He had read about a case in New York, back in America, where he's from, where this had happened. Someone had written the word Raish. Uh, believe some communists or some description. <laughs> yeah, sure. I and see. then they were puzzled by it. He was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I love how this is before the time of like DNA testing. Yeah. He's just literally yeah. spread. He's, he's like he's, DNA he's, all right. over the Blood is everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. There would have been like, this is blood from a man's nose. And we know who, which the, where the man is. Yeah. Yeah. Also, for some reason, blood from his nose is worse than if it was just like blood that like from a dead body. Yeah. I don't know why it's grosser. Yeah, why is that? That's gross. Snot in it. Blood and snot. So he's bled all over the place. He's written his word, Rach. He's killed the guy. After leaving the crime scene, you realize that he'd left the ring behind. Yes. He's only a memento of his love, and that's why he'd gone back to get it. But once he got there, the police were already there, so he had to pretend to be a drunken. Very good. And they moved him on. So that was him this whole time. He's good. He's bloody good, this guy. He's awesome. But they deduced that, didn't they? They were yeah, like, they we did. probably should have arrested that Holmes guy near knew. the murder. Yeah. Jefferson Hope then went round to Stangerson's hotel where he broke in and gave him the same proposition of the two pills. But Stangerson attacked him and grabbed Jefferson's throat. So in self-defense, he had to stab him. Yeah, fair enough. So that's why, that's why he killed him that way. Do you think he would have taken the poison? Like, because he's like, take a pill, I'll take the other pill. Do you think he would have taken the poison? Well, he had a 50-50 option there. Yeah. Jefferson was confident that justice would have protected him and made sure that the oh, murderer took okay. He basically felt like he was on a mission from well, God. Well, that's dumb. Okay. But yeah, okay. He saw himself as acting as judge, jury, and executioner. He had no regrets that he'd mm. killed two men. The only thing that he would not reveal was the name of his accomplice that had dressed up as an old woman. So that was not him. That was a friend. Wasn't him, okay. A friend who was clearly a very good actor. Yes. Correct. Or an old lady. Yeah, or an actual very spry old, old yeah, woman. exactly. <laughs> Uh, Jefferson was never tried for his crimes for the next night he died of his aneurysm and was discovered with a smile upon his face. Quote, as though he had been able in his dying moments to look back upon a useful life and on work well done. <laughs> they deduced that from his smile. That's great. Well, because back then in the mines he dedicated the rest of his life to revenge and he achieved it. That's so. true, yeah. Not many people get to die having achieved their goals. No. Was the old woman Moriarty? It could be. Mm. We'll never know, we'll never will know. we? Dr. Moriarty being uh, the nemesis the nemesis of Sherlock of, yeah. Holmes. Mm. It could have been. 
Uh, the last chapter is Holmes explaining to Watson as to how he was able to solve the of crime. Of course it so is. This is yeah. the big explanation, that the, uh, the, the call-out. In Agatha Christie, they have the call-out where she brings everyone into a room. Like, listen up. And okay. then uh, the detective of choice says, this is what happened. Basically, using his reasoning, Holmes was able to put together the events that led up to the murder. That's what he says is different from him and other people. Other people can see a pattern and can see how it will end, but he sees the end product and works out what pattern occurred that led to the end. That's what he says is his skill. He saw the wedding ring and knew that the crime was probably over a woman rather than a robbery. Yeah. He telephoned the head of police at Cleveland in Ohio, for they knew that the man, uh, Drebber, had been in Ohio from the letter... He inquired about Enoch Drebber and asked if he knew anything about his marriage, having seen the wedding ring. Quote, the answer was conclusive. It told me that Drebber had already applied for protection of the law against an old rival in love, a man named Jefferson Hope, and that this same Hope was at present in Europe. Very good. Because remember, he had him, had him arrested. Yeah, right. Oh, that's right, because he called him to the, they called the cab, and okay, that's how he knew. Okay, yeah. okay. He knew that the murderer probably drove a taxi carriage as he'd seen evidence of a carriage arriving with two men and leaving with only one out the front. Right, we saw yes. the tracks. So he got one of the street boys that he kept in his employment. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. As, inf- no, as informants and the like. <laughs> okay. Uh, to go out to every cab office in London to find if a man by the name of Jefferson Hope worked for them. He found him, and then he booked his services, and that's why the man had come to his home to be arrested by... Do you reckon he paid him? Whether he Free paid services? the cabbies? <laughs> I do not think so. I think he put the handcuffs on and said, sorry, pal, you're not getting paid for this. With special springs. So, yeah, yeah, you'll never get out of these. So, basically, that was the answer to your question. Why yes. would he go to Sherlock Holmes' house? Because they found that specific cab driver and booked him to come I out. find that very reasonable. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm okay with that. I thought it was going to be some ridiculous no, and coincidence. Holmes, Holmes reasoned, why would he stop driving cabs now? He still needs a job and he's trapped in London. Oh, yeah, fair point. And he yeah. actually revealed, I'm dying, but I'm trying to save enough money to get back to America before yes. I die. Uh, the novel ends with a paragraph from the newspaper, The Echo, which talks about the crime and gives all the credit to the police officers. Quote, it is an open secret that the credit of this smart capture belongs entirely to the well-known Scotland Yard officials, Lestrade and Gregson. The man was apprehended, it appears, in the rooms of a certain Sherlock Holmes, who has... Himself, as an amateur, shown some talent in the detective line, <laughs> who, with such instructors, may hope in time to attain to some degree of skill. Ah, oh, that's the dream. Sherlock is, of course, furious at this, but Watson tries to comfort him and says, quote, Never mind, I have all the facts in my journal, and the public shall know them. But, so he's not publishing Sherlock yeah, Holmes Yeah, which stories. is what we're reading. Yeah. So it's actually published as if it was a real person yes. talking about Sherlock Holmes. Do you think there was any confusion at the time whether these were real stories? No, I think Conan Doyle was pretty happy to put his name to okay, it and become, cool. and become a bit of <laughs> a celebrity. He didn't do the weird J.K. Rowling no. anonymous. Happy to become very wealthy and a bit of a celebrity. Mm. And it ends with a line uh, that in Latin that I will not read because I do not read Latin, but oh, it translates boom. as I looked it up. The public hiss at me, but I cheer myself when in my own house I contemplate the coins in my strong box. Basically... They know who the real detective is. They know what's up. I know. I'm, around my house, I'm a pretty big deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is the end of the first ever Sherlock Holmes story. How, thank you. Thank you so much. Well done, Dave. Well How done, crazy Dave. is that second half? Yeah, that's it's I so did not. It's crazy. It takes it like a massive turn. But it adds, and I think it adds some good dimensions to the story, to be honest. I'm surprised yeah. I had. 
it's not more famous, I guess. Yeah. What? Well, yeah. So yeah, I, looking up in, into the the backstory of this novel, that first half has been adapted many, many times. Mm. But I think rarely, if ever, have they ever had you know a man taken in by the Mormon Church, then going against them. There's often there's another reason. Yeah. Yeah. For, for why, but for me, that was the most entertaining part of the book. I yeah. loved that. But it was extremely well written. Do a lot of those books go? Uh, other books go off on those tangents? I don't think so. Do they? I've never read any of the novels. I read some yeah. Sherlock Holmes short stories before. It is often him just explaining. You know, as you said at the start, like I'm so clever. This is what really this happened. Is what really, I'm doing. Often yeah. Nearly always yeah. right. But with that one, yeah, it was this whole secondary novel. Yeah. And the fact yeah. that he was able to basically put two separate novels in about a hundred pages. That is amazing. impressive, yeah. yeah. And the characters are so well drawn. Like that second half, you don't get to know them for very long, but you automatically already feel like they're really interesting yeah. and yeah. complex. I and like those guys more than I like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. I found that to be probably the best part mm. Best part of it. Now, yeah. I always ask the guests to score it out of five based on what you've heard here today. Sure. What would you guys, each of you, what Ooh, do you think? I am... Thanks for letting me go first, James. I am going to give it... A four and a half out of five. Four and a half. That is a good score. I really enjoyed it. The only, the half thing that I'm not giving it a five for is that the, there's like very not many female characters, if any, and it's basically a whole lot of men doing things. There is a lot of men in Sherlock Holmes, I'm mm. sorry to say. It's true. Mm. Though there is a character that he just refers to as the woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Excellent. The woman who has broken his heart in the past. Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I, I, Irene Adler? Irene Adler, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That old trope of women always being there for the plot point of all the men. In Though the she story. is written in the story as someone who outwits him. Like one of the yes, few I people who very, actually very, outwits him. I think him. that is probably oh, yeah. also why he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. Broken heart. And also, she's pretty clever. Yeah. Well, how could... Dare there be a clever woman? I know. Yeah. I loved that there were so many men in it, so I'm going to give it a five. That's because <laughs> that's horses? what because I can't there relate. More horses in it. Yeah, No, I think it's a four for me. Um, I quite liked it. I think it does, it sets up a lot of the things that, especially for the time, a lot of things that, that established, including magnifying glasses that people hadn't really seen. Yes, like, it is amazing it from that perspective. Yeah, you totally because yeah. basically there's all these detective tropes now that mm. a lot of them were invented by yep. Arthur Conan Doyle. And then I think he and both Agatha Christie towards, she wrote a lot later than him, but towards the end of their careers took them longer to write the novels and both got frustrated because people started figuring out the endings a bit more. But right, basically, because yeah. he's a bit like, well, I've been writing them for 40 years. Yes. I've written 60 stories. It's hard to come up with the ideas Absolutely now. And also is. they become more predictable because... He's set the tone. I'd imagine there'd yeah. be a bunch of knockoffs as well. People, yeah. So that's another thing. So yeah, yeah, he becomes super yeah. popular. He becomes very rich and famous. Yeah, mm. uh, I would give it a four and a half out of five. Love the mystery part. That was cool, but particularly love the middle Salt Lake City story. Yes. It was mm. yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mm. love the imagery of the opening of that second half. Like it just is so surprising. Yes, it's honestly Girl like in a backpack, completely yeah. in a different yeah. novel and different country, completely different setting. You go from London and the cobblestone streets and suddenly this like big expansive empty desert yeah and he like described it figures. Yeah. there's a full page of description that i because i think if you enjoyed. adapted that straight i think visually that would be a really interesting contrast yeah. yes i thought that even just yeah. that second story could be a movie in itself. yes and then it's like twist it's a sherlock holmes story yeah, that would be cr- yeah. that would actually be kind of cool if you did mm. in reverse you're right yeah. yeah you were you just follow it chronologically mm. yeah 
I was going to say, didn't Arthur Conan Doyle, he killed Sherlock because he wanted to be done with him. If yes, because he got so frustrated. Falls, yeah, so both him and he... Moriarty fall over the falls. Yeah. And I, I think they call it the great hiatus when he was right. away for many years, but then he brought, brought, the, brought the character back. Yeah. And he hadn't died after all. That's right. Needed some more. And then he met Ooh, Batman. Yeah. And then it's true. <laughs> he met Batman and he survived so long from honey. It preserved... Him. What? He lived Sherlock for over a hundred years. So like has met Batman in a comic. Oh, in a I don't know. It wasn't in a kind of toy. Yeah. Surely he I was dead he... long before Batman. Yes. Because a lot of Batman is based what? off I mean, Batman is pretty much like Zorro and Sherlock Holmes and the Phantom and Except whatever running else. Running around in a bat suit. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Doing detective work. Yeah, with more muscles, yeah. Yeah. Less drugs. I like that it establishes so much of the Sherlock character that then carries on into... Yeah, that's They don't cool. really change, like, retcon a bunch of stuff and there's seeds for things which kind of kind of come up in later stories, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a good place to start and maybe in future I'll do another one of the novels, mm. one of the uh, more famous ones. But yeah, so that just brings us to the end of the episode part of the show. Now... We've started doing a thing where we shout out to some people on Patreon. Love it. That support both, oh, all three, the Do Go On podcast, which I host with Matt Stewart and Jess Perkins, a podcast basically where we have a topic suggested to us by a listener. It's usually from history and we take it in terms to report on it. Sometimes it's Star Wars. Sometimes it's Star Wars. That's right. <laughs> when I did it that one time. That was fun. <laughs> I did, yeah. It's a great show. It's really good. Oh, thank yeah. you so and much. And if people listening to this, they probably know that, I assume. Oh, yeah. yeah, a lot of people have found Booksheet through uh, Do mm. Go On. And also, Matt Stewart's uh, spin-off podcast, Primates, are all supported by one single Patreon to make it very easy for everyone. Oh, really? You okay. get bonus episodes and things like that. What's, you, when's Jess going to do a bloody spin-off bloody podcast? Well, people keep trying to... she's busy. She, her and Matt once went on a Primates episode, uh, talked about doing a podcast called Phrasing the Bar, where they go through the <laughs> films of Brendan Fraser in oh, order. Oh, going to be Fraser the Tim, is Phrasing, <laughs> Phrasing the Bar. That's great. And people, and there was a bit of a joke, and now people are actually asking them to start hosting it. So if you want it to happen, uh, tweet Jess, and maybe that. we'll get a fourth podcast out of our, yeah. our little mini network within your Planet Broadcasting Network. Correct. Love it. So, uh, yeah, you can get bonus stuff if you support the show on Patreon. And including, I've asked people to tell me what their favourite book is, and mm. I read it out. Maybe to suggest uh, to people, maybe some more modern stuff, but actually we're going to start with a classic. George Fuentes, thank you for supporting the show. George Fuentes, what a fantastic name. Great name. George's favourite book is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh. Which actually, quite a, I've been told it's quite a short one, so maybe... Get into some, it. Some, <laughs> sometimes. That's that era, because the first one <clears throat> we did was... Um, what is it? Bloody the picture Dorian of Dorian Gray. Gray. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's all that era of kind of monsters from yeah, nineteenth century. Right. Mm. And uh, he uh, George pitches it to everyone as a great story and concept that is yet to be made into a proper proper film. He says, "League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came close, but couldn't get over the final hurdle." That's I am being film. sarcastic about that. Yes, know? that is not a good movie. <laughs> yeah, I think we talked about that. We also. did talk about that, yeah. and it came up again on another episode I did, and I couldn't. You should do everybody in the League of Extraordinary yeah, Gentlemen. Do should. the Invisible Man. Do. Do, do they talk about Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? They yeah, do. Yes, that as well. What, yeah, I, I talked about Ahab. Yeah, uh, Captain Nemo. Nemo, Nemo. sorry, yeah, yeah. You're so right. we talked about that. So he, he keeps coming up. So maybe I will have to one day do just a review of the League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen. But it was based on that graphic novel, yes, you said, wasn't it? One, which yeah. is very popular. Yes, and good. so maybe I'll do that. Uh, thanks, George. Abby S. Garland tells us her favourite book is Shantaram by oh, yeah. Gregory David Roberts. You love that, don't you? I did. It's very long. 
That's really? a long book, yeah. I'm not yeah. familiar. Uh, Abby tells us it's a book that made me laugh and cry out loud. Definitely a page turner for me. It's a, lo- it's a long one, though. It's about a man going to India. And it's, yeah, it's incredible. I think he escapes from jail. I read it a long time ago, but it is. It's a, it's a I'm really looking up here, 936 pages in the uh, US paperback yeah. edition. Yeah. But, Abby, it's a great It's like book. seven Sherlock Holmes stories. My yeah, goodness. It's a, it's got, Imagine it's a how many twists and turns story. you could have in there. <laughs> there is a lot of it's twists and It's a true story? Yeah, I think it's based on a true story. Right. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. Really? It's a book that everyone is recommended to read if they are headed to India. Hmm. It's quite spiritual as well. Oh, There's boo. A lot of kind of spiritual stuff in it too. Uh, to read off Wikipedia, the novel is reportedly influenced by real events in the life of the author. Though some claims made by Roberts are contested by others involved in the story, as is often the case with any autobiographical thing, sure. isn't it? Correct. Uh, thank you so much, Abby. 900 pages. Great work on that. And Luke Holhouse finally tells us, My fave book is probably The History of the Ancient World by Susan Wise Bauer. I have always really enjoyed ancient history since I read the Percy Jackson novels by Rick Rawdon. So this is perfect. It goes from the prehistory of civilization to the fall of the Roman Empire, spanning the entire globe, and it's super engaging. Been great for research for my podcast too. Luke, you didn't tell us what your podcast is. (laughs) Get, get back in contact. We'll tell uh, the world about your history podcast. Uh, thanks so much for supporting the show. We do appreciate that. Uh, George, Abby, and Luke. And if you want to do so, there's a link to the Patreon in this uh, episode as well. There's a link to where you can suggest a book. Tell me what I should do. If you've got an exam coming up, you don't want to read the book. I've done. We've had a few people get in contact. I did uh, Hamlet recently for that very reason. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you go? Did you, did you do well in the exam? Was I'd imagine report? not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe very well. I maybe found your explanation. Well, yeah. I feel like I've sh- read this book now. You should get people to write in after the exams to be like, hey, you yes. only did it based on I this. Think someone did write in recently about one of the, the books maybe of Mice and Men of the Great Gatsby, one of the earlier ones I did, and they, they said they got a solid B, I think. So. Solid B is great. I that's think that's great. for not reading the book. That's pretty good. That's very good. I think it's great. Mm. Oh, but that does bring us to the end of the episode. And before uh, we wrap this up, I would love to point people in the direction of your fantastic podcasts. Uh, Claire, uh. your podcast, which both James and I have been guests on individually and together. That's, have we? We did the live one. Oh, we did too. Yay. Yeah, we did. That's yes. right. It was a lot yes. of fun. Uh, just Make the Thing. Please tell us about that. It's a great show. I'd love people to check it out. Oh, thanks, Dave. Yeah, so it's called Just Make the Thing, and it's the people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. So um, I interview people like Dave, who makes a podcast or many podcasts, and James, who does as well, and then artists and writers and musicians. Um, and then I also have kind of conversations with friends of mine as well, and particularly one of my friends, Chanel Lutev, who is a lawyer with the Department of Justice. And it's just... For anyone out there who has a thing they want to do or make or create and is stuck mm. and needs some help in how to get it off the ground. So I've had a lot of people write in to tell me that since listening to it, they've written that screenplay that they thought they could never write or oh, that's started so cool. painting. Mm. Yeah, or started You've actually gardening. actually inspired people. Yeah, it's really cool. I started cooking again and just, it's a, yeah, a little bit of inspiration in your ears. So, yeah. So check it out, Just Make the Thing, and all the shows are at planetbroadcasting.com, the network Correct. that we are all they a part are. of and you are the, the heads of. And uh, James, of course, your fantastic show. Thank you. It's the called Weekly The Planet. Weekly Planet. I just want to quickly say my favourite episode of Claire's show is the one where you interview Gemma, who's a movie director, who's... Um, yeah, who's oh, Gemma Lee. Gemma Lee, yeah, who's, um, yeah, who's worked her way up in the film industry and... and done multiple jobs it's a super interesting podcast so I think that episode in particular I think is a, yeah, is a, cool. one of my favourite ones 
But uh, sorry, yeah, I have a podcast called The Weekly Planet where we talk about movies and comics and TV shows. I was just thinking, Dave, we should have you on to talk about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Okay. We haven't had you on yet. I'd actually and love that would to be, do that. That would be great. So if we all watch it and then come together and make Fantastic. fun of it. Fantastic. Uh, that sounds like a, a gay old time. I'll be linking to that when that comes on out. Excellent. <laughs> great. Yeah. And uh, you also do some fantastic work on YouTube too. Yes. If people are wanting to watch some visual stuff. That's right. Uh, called Mr. Sunday Movies where I do talk about movies and yell about Spider-Man and it's fine. Very good and ridiculously popular for a good reason. So fantastic stuff. Now, um, if you want to get in contact with me, the email for this podcast is bookcheatpod at gmail.com and we are at bookcheatpod. I say our, it's me. If, I wrote, <laughs> if you get a tweet from it, it's probably me or someone has hacked the account. <laughs> it is uh, at bookcheatpod on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. I try and put up extra stuff on there. So if you want to... Uh, follow us there. That'd be uh, fantastic. I'm saying us. It's strange. It's, it's so, so strange. <laughs> just Dave. It's just, just to be clear. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for uh, listening to the show, and thank you to you guys so much for giving up your time. Oh, coming thank on. you for it was having a us. I learned so I love much. It. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoy this, and I, in my personal time. If I ever have any of it, I'm going to read some more Sherlock Holmes. Absolutely. It was it was good fun. Any hints towards the ne- next book, or you want to save that? Uh, I'm not sure. I think it might be. Uh, I might do another play. Okay, a classic play. Ooh, nice. But maybe okay. we'll do that. But uh, get in contact as soon as this comes out. Maybe you can change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that does bring us to the end of the show, uh, guys. Thank you so much. And until next week, I'll say contemplate the coins in your strong box. Is <laughs> 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 that? Latin at the end of the novel, did. Thank you, goodbye. Oh my God, he's getting on a horse. He's riding out of here backwards. Yeah. <laughs> he's taking a path on a shot. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you.